You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. <laughs> I'm muting, dude. I can't do this. Welcome to episode seven of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my boys, Concrete Johnin and David Howe. Tonight's guest, Irina Bachi, is an anthropologist and archaeologist studying at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, one of the top anthropology departments in the United States. Irina studies Bronze Age settlement patterns in Albania and Kosovo. She's also highly proficient in ArcGIS and uses this mapping software to analyze geospatial data of archaeological sites. It's rare to find a North American archaeologist who specializes in a specific European period and culture, so we're excited to learn more about it. We met Arena last year at the Society for American Archaeology meeting in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and discussed a possible interview with her in the future. Luckily for you, that interview is today. All right, Arena, if you don't mind starting it out by introducing who you are and your credentials as of this moment. Okay, yeah. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, my name is Arena Bachi, and I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Michigan. I'm currently in my second year. How is Ann Arbor these days? Um, it's It's been all right. Um, I keep waiting for it to get cold, but it hasn't been happening yet. Um, so we've been enjoying the rare glimpses of blue sky. The sky is perpetually gray here, usually. Does it just dump snow at a certain like part of the fall, or is it kind of? Do you have a good fall? We have like a decent fall for like a month, and then October hits, and then you know it's like perpetual winter until like April. But you know, oh. I'm used. I'm kind of used to that kind of weather. So well, fair enough. So you're a PhD student at one of the top archaeology departments in the country at University of Michigan Ann Arbor. So like, just real quick, what got you interested originally in anthropology and archaeology? I've always been interested in becoming an archaeologist. Uh, it has a lot to do with, I guess, my background. Uh, growing up, I was like super headstrong from like the age of six, determined that I would become an archaeologist. And I was very like hell-bent on like studying the, um, the prehistory of Albania from a very young age. And it's something that kind of just followed me throughout my, I guess, education. Uh, throughout high school, um, people were changing their minds about what they wanted to do. I knew exactly what program I wanted to apply to at what school. And the same applies for when I like applied for my master's and my PhD. I was always very determined and I always knew what I wanted to do. Oh, very cool. Where were you actually raised? Um, yeah, so that, that, that ties into like my, I guess, my interest in Albania. So I was born in Albania. I'm a first-generation immigrant. My family immigrated to Canada when I was five or five or six. Um, and I was raised in Toronto, hence the getting, hence being like familiar with cold weather. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent most of my life in Toronto. But yeah, growing up, I would hear a lot about tales and stories about the people uh, before of the prehistory of Albania. And I always just wanted to know more. That hometown back in Albania where that you're from, it's near one of the most famous archaeological sites in Albania. Is that correct? Yeah. So again, that has a lot to do with my interests. Um, my dad was an amateur archaeologist. Um, so I guess my love of archaeology kind of comes from him. His hometown is um, Selce Postme, and it is home to the royal tombs of Selce Postme. Um, and it's one of the most famous sites in Albania. It was excavated in the 70s by an Albanian archaeologist named Neritan Seca. And my family's ties to this site are actually uh, longstanding. A few of my aunts and uncles actually worked as laborers on the site. And I visited the site for the first time when I was 16. And it was just like this kind of moment where everything like kind of cemented. I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to come back here and I wanted to study the prehistory of the place where I was born. What made you choose to um, attend Mississippi State for your master's? Because you got your bachelor's in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. And then you decided to, yeah, University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. Then you came to the American um, university system. So what, what kind of, what was the impetus for uh, changing countries? Um, the desire to work in Albania. I really enjoyed my time at the University of Toronto. It's a wonderful program, but I found that my research interests were kind of limited in terms of what I could pursue afterwards. I knew I wanted to work in the old world, but I didn't want to go into classical studies. So I just went on the internet and I like I googled archaeologists that work in Albania because it was very important for me to find uh, an advisor for my master's that 
A has worked in Albania and B has an interest on taking a student who wants to continue to work in Albania. It was very important for me to have that sort of tie to working in Albania. So I Googled um, archaeologists who work in Albania and like four people came up. So I emailed them all and I heard very good responses from a lot of people, but everybody was telling me that I needed to email uh, Michael Galati at Mississippi State because he's has been actively working in Albania. So I sent Mike an email asking if he was taking out students and he said yes. Um, I went and I visited the campus and I really, really loved what I saw in terms of how the department was shaped and how everything was. And um, it was kind of a no brainer after that. The department also like fully funds masters, including international students, which is really, really rare. So again, it was a no brainer, like full funding, an advisor that works in Albania and that was willing to let me take on a topic of my choice. It was like a dream. That's pretty cool. Now, I imagine there was a culture shock going from Canada to the... Starkville, Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, Mississippi of all places. Oh, yeah. I think like the biggest difference was... Um, okay, so I went to my... I did my bachelor in, in downtown Toronto. Um, so going to Starkville, Mississippi, the biggest difference was like the Greek life. Um, that's a really big thing here. And I had never seen that before. Oh, yeah, it's the South. We party. Oh, my God. Was, oh, oh, I can vouch. I can vouch. It was so strange. It was the strangest thing. It was a really interesting cultural thing to observe. But other than that, like the shift wasn't too different. Um, coming from Canada, it's fairly easy. I mean, the language is the same. The system is more or less the same. And despite being a small town, I really enjoyed my time in Starkville, Mississippi. Did you get to go to Bops a lot? Yes. Oh my God. They're frozen yogurt, uh, custard. Oh, yeah. We went to Bops yeah, a lot. I think Derek and Molly took me there. It was pretty good. Yep. Yep. There was some Cajun place too. I can't remember what it was called. Oh, there's a few um, Cajun places. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I've been to Starkville a few times. It was hot, mm -hmm. but like it's a cool college town. Mm -hmm. It is. It's a great environment to be in. But yeah. Oh my God. The humidity. Yeah, that I oh God. consider jumping off a bridge constantly living in the South. <laughs> oh, so I, hot. Every time I go back to Virginia, I remember starkly why I decided to go out West. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember my first few days there, like literally thinking to myself, where have you come? Because you go outside and literally in two seconds you're covered in sweat. It's like the most uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, it's like going into a sauna like every, every just, like just, just, yeah, just stepping outside is a sauna. David, can you say sauna again? Sauna? Thank you. Oh, right. Yeah. Sorry. He's trying to. Yep. <laughs> um, I have a, apparently a talking problem. So um, at Starkville, did you get to work with Shane? I know you went to uh, Topper once or twice. I'm sorry. The Allendale, Allendale Church Quarry, as it were. I did. So Shane was actually my thesis advisor. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. He is a wonderful, wonderful advisor. Um, GIS and stats wizard, of course. And uh, I did get to go right. out to the topper site. Shane usually takes students out when we have like week long breaks, either uh, spring break or fall break. I went for, I think, the spring break, and it was so bitterly cold. We were camping. Yeah. <laughs> we camped at some point. We lost water. It was, you know, it was an adventure. But it was totally, totally worth it. We got to see the topper site, which somebody who's always been obsessed with archaeology, you read about the topper site, but you don't think you're ever going to go to right. the topper site. And then I just found myself one day literally digging, like not on the topper site proper, but like off of it. Like, yeah, you guys we remember were the swag, swag site? Yeah. Or... And it was just amazing. Okay, yeah. So, like, for anyone listening, well, the Topper site is, it's a, it's a large Clovis site, um, and it has, it's one of the biggest in the country, I think, and it has a controversial pre-Clovis component to it, um, where they believe people were there 50,000 years earlier than thought, um, actually 40,000 years earlier than thought, um, which some people subscribe to, some people don't, um, but the, I'm sure, Arena, what you saw is anywhere around, it's mm -hmm. a big church quarry, mm -hmm. so anywhere you stick a shovel yeah, in the ground, you pull out, like, literally, like, tortilla chips yeah. full of like just tan shirt that are all like utrapasse mm -hmm. flakes they're like from the surface all the way down to clovis it's mm -hmm. pretty mm -hmm. amazing yeah. it's supposed to be like pretty easy digging too right you just like digging through sand oh my god you it is literally sand and it was the strangest experience for me i'd never dug in like such sandy material before like i'm used to working in like albania which is sun-baked right and we actually have people with pickaxes out there yeah, and like in Greece, where you like you have pickaxes, and 
there I'm like I was like my first like my first time actually going in I was like you know bracing myself getting ready to feel some resistance and then I was so surprised at how easy my travel just kind of like glided it was yeah it was a new experience for sure I think it's all sandy. I can't remember. I know it's sandy loam at some parts. Sand. I don't remember, but it's it's literally just ten YR forty. Mm. Like every time yeah. I do a month yeah. sales sample, it's yeah. pretty straightforward. Nerd, you were telling me, David, that you just like you take like one scrape and you'd be down a level, and you're like, oh. yeah, yeah. You go through it so fast, so easy. <laughs> and Derek Anderson, who's like, he's a Wyoming grad too, but he's a six foot. I want to say like nine dude. Mm-hmm. Like he's tall. He would like come crouch next to you as you're digging and I would get so self-conscious that I was digging too hard and like sweating from like him staring at me. I would just like scrape <laughs> too hard and he's like, you went deep. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> it's just so yeah, easy to do. Yeah. But So that was basically Carlton. For those listeners who listened to the last episode, that was Carlton in Nebraska. Oh, right. The staring down cool. people's throats. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Jeff, 100%. The TH role just going around making people's lives miserable. My favorite thing. <laughs> Working with Shane. So Shane was my field school advisor. Um, and he's kind of just been like <laughs> my like letter of rec person for years now. Cause he's just, I know him well, like it, it's cool to me that like a lot of us can be from all these different places, but we have kind of a similar mm-hmm. network and pedigree. How, has Shane's advising of you helped you at all at Michigan? Oh my God. So much. So Shane taught a stats, a stats class at Mississippi yeah. State. And that was like one of the most useful classes I've taken. And he was so helpful in terms of like, just even when I was doing my research, I would run into a problem either with ArcGIS, or if my stats weren't adding up right. And he was just like, always there, always willing to help like sit, like sitting down with me going through my chi squares, like, um, so yeah, I would say quite a bit because I have, I think a fairly decent knowledge I would like to say a stats now, thanks to Shane Miller. So nice. Shane studied under uh, I think Steve Kuhn and Mary Steiner at Arizona, which I think I think that's what Shane did. But yeah, that's what Todd and Nicole did for us at Wyoming. So it's like we have a similar. Todd's just a stats wizard, so mm-hmm. it's like we both kind of have a similar education, but going to different schools, which I think mm-hmm. is super cool because yeah. then you learn different things in Mississippi. We learned different things at Wyoming. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, Carlton, did you have some more questions? Oh yeah, dude. Absolutely. I, I was, I'm really just curious, like what the difference in, in kind of like the theory or perspectives between Canadian anthropology and archeology span and American archeology span and anthropology that you've noticed um, since you've been through both systems. To be honest, I don't think I've noticed a very big difference. I think because Canada and the United States are very similar in terms of just both being in North America. I think the field has, the fields in both countries have kind of just progressed along the same way. I think there's a more of a stark difference in terms of like the discipline in Europe and the discipline in North America. But in terms of Canada and the United States, I found it to be more or less the same. And I find that in each department, it like slightly varies based on the people that are there. So if you've got people that are more like science driven, you got like a more processual tendencies. And if you got people that are more like interpretive and um, you know, postmodern driven, then you've got like different kind of tendencies. But I feel, I feel like it varies by department. But overall, anthropology and archaeology in Canada and the United States, I feel like follow the general trend of the discipline in North America, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just, yeah, no, it does. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I did notice that there's a little bit more of a difference between the disciplines in um um, in Europe and in North America. And I think that has to do a lot of, um, with the history of how the disciplines have like evolved over time, like with, um, archeology span being rooted more in anthropology here in North America and it being rooted more in history and classical studies in Europe. So I think that there's a difference there. There's a classic rivalry between like European and North America as you, as you evolve through history or as you go through history in terms of archaeology, mm-hmm. like the board mm-hmm. versus um, Binford debate is classic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it goes back into that too, as well. Goes yeah. on and on, yeah. And it's something I noticed. I just, I did six, no, I did four and a half weeks in Ukraine doing Ukrainian archaeology. And they're very mm-hmm. much part of that European mindset. So like sit mm-hmm. down and like be a, the single American on a crew full of Ukrainians and talk with them about how they do archaeology, how they look at the archaeological record. And those were some definitely very enlightening and fruitful conversations Mm -hmm. um, because it's definitely, uh, you know, a different mindset to how they Mm -hmm. deal with their, you know, material record. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's some things that like I feel like aren't even on the table in terms of considerations when you're working, I guess, in Europe as they are here. For example, uh, when you're an archaeologist in North America, you have to be very careful about, you know, where you're digging in terms of is could this site have any implications for Native Americans and stuff like that. Whereas that's not so much a case there. Um, I was at a, a site in Korch. Uh, which is like southern Albania, it was a commercial archaeology project. And I had people um, come up and ask me all the time. And I don't know why they came up to me. I guess it's because I was the um, English speaker in the area, but I was just an intern. So I'd have higher ups come up to me and be like, what do you think about these people that we're digging up? Um, will people be upset that we're you know, removing them? Are we going to repatriate them and stuff like that? And I'm like, that's not really an issue here um, as much. And like, those are good questions to think about, but those are questions that I guess aren't thought about as much over there. Right. And I think a lot, large portion that has to do with that Ukrainian or that Europeans see the archeological record that they're dealing with as, as their own ancestors, where, you know, you get prior to 1492 and the Americas and there's definitely a population shift and a culture shift. And I think mm-hmm. a different mindset that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but, uh, well, the Royal Mounted Canadian Police are declaring this podcast as a crime against humanity. Once we get this sorted out, we'll be right back with Section 2 and continue our interview with Arena Bachi. All right, so we're back to a Life in Ruins podcast. We are all masters here, I believe, so that means we've all written a master's thesis. Uh, and I'm just curious, Arena, what did you do your master's thesis on? And please feel free to elaborate. Oh, yeah. Well, not surprisingly, I wrote a master's thesis based in Albania. So um, I did. uh, Yeah, no surprise there. Um, So I did a massive kind of macro scale settlement pattern analysis. And my goal with my research was I wanted to better understand the interactions between the native populations in prehistory in Albania and kind of outside uh, groups of people, mainly the Greeks and the Romans. And my my drive for that was you know, having an education in North America, um, I never really got to like read about the prehistory of Albania. Um, so I, you know, I read about the Greeks, I read about the Romans, and I read what they said about the Illyrians, which is the native population that lived in Albania and most of the Southern Balkans in prehistory. And of course, it's like a very biased opinion. You have the Greeks calling them barbarians like they did everybody else. And you have the Romans conquering the area like in the first century uh, BC. So I wanted to know what the settlement pattern looked like before major contact with outside groups of people. And I know that's like kind of like a there's a caveat to be considered because people have always been interacting with each other, but I wanted to know generally, sure, sure. What was, yeah, what was the pattern before you have like a consistent outside presence? So for example, before the foundation of Greek colonies and then following onward from that. So when the area was made a uh, Roman province. So um, of course this is a master's thesis. So, you know, I couldn't go too deep into it and I um, kind of ran out of time near the end of it because I wanted to do a multi-scalar analysis. I think multi-scalar analysis provides like a lot more um, insight. So I was going to uh, initially incorporate data from surveys that have been carried out in Albania, one in the south and one in the north. But um, I again, I ran out of time. I finished the program in two years when it's supposed to be three years. So I just kind of cut that part Congratulations out. Congratulations on that. <laughs> Man, I don't recommend that to anybody. Love yourself more. <laughs> take your time. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, so like I just did the macro analysis, which is essentially looking at three snapshots in time. I used um, GIS to do that. So I compiled this massive like database of every site I could possibly find that fell within my study period, which is a massive period. It's like the the Iron Age in that part of the world, which is like 1100 BC, up until the fall of the Roman um, Empire in that part of the world, which is 395 AD. So it's a massive time slice. And I partitioned it into like periods that I thought were relevant to my questions. So my first kind of my first period was what I called the pre-contact period, which is um, 1100 BC to the foundation of the first Greek colonies. And then I had my second period, which was, you know, the Greek influence period, which was after the foundation of the first colonies up until Roman incorporation. And then the third period was Roman incorporation until Roman fall, like or fall of the Roman Empire. And I pretty much created three. Yeah, it was a massive, massive time. I created three snapshots using ArcGIS um, of the settle. I did um, quite a bit of analysis, actually. I did distance analysis. I did um 
I did like dense uh, heat maps. I wanted to see if there was nucleation. And um, I guess my theoretical tendencies for my analysis were a little bit uh, world systemy, which I understand people have problems with world systems. But my argument was, if there's colonies, they're going to act to attract people. Like colonies attract people for various reasons. One one that I was looking at was, you know, perhaps economic interests. So one of my main hypotheses was that through time, we're not only going to see more sites, but we're going to see sites clustering around colonies. And in a nutshell, that's what I found. I found that there's a massive settlement shift after a Greek presence and after a Roman presence, sites kind of shift down uh, to the south of Albania. They shift to the clo- uh, to the coast um, and they shift to the colonies. And what was really, really interesting for the Roman period, you have this massive band like appear across um, like the middle of Albania, which is where uh, a Roman road called the Via Gnadia would have been. So you just have this like kind of linear hotspot along the road, which I thought was super interesting. Um, it was it was super cool. I didn't expect to find like, I didn't expect to get that kind of like results. Um, and I did a lot more analysis. I did like, uh, I looked for if there was trends in regards to proximity to rivers, if there was trends in certain elevation preferences, if there was trends in proximity to roads. And I tested all that um, statistically with millions of chi-squares. Um, so yeah, that was my master's research in a nutshell. That's that's super awesome. Because I'm a GIS person myself, I have two questions for you. How many times did your ArcMap crash because you had such a huge data set <laughs> and how frustrated were you with it? And Dude. Um, could, you, could you explain the multi-scale analysis and how dif- how studying things at different scales can give you different information? First, it crashed multiple, multiple times, especially when I was doing my viewshed analysis because raster analysis is a lot more like labor intensive for the computer than a simple like vector analysis. So when I was trying to do my viewshed analysis, which is essentially a type of analysis that looks at what's visible from your point of reference, it just wouldn't work. It would crash. And just, I got so frustrated. I like, I ended up going to Shane and be like, Shane, please help. And so we eventually to like make things work a little bit, we eventually put buffers so that it would only calculate a viewshed for a certain range because afterwards it kind of became pointless. Uh, we reasoned that the human eye can only see so far anyways. So I mm-hmm. gave like a very, like I gave a, a buffer that is like, okay, there's no way a human eye could possibly see more than this anyways. And it really cut down on the, like the analysis time. And it finally worked. And I think it, like I needed to take my laptop to Shane for it to, to work because afterwards it just decided it wanted to. So that's how, that's how GIS is sometimes. It doesn't work until it, it does. Yeah, absolutely. I've like left stuff overnight because you're like, just please work. Please, mm-hmm. please, yeah. please work. Yeah. And especially with raster yeah. analysis, like you mentioned, they're insane. The elevation, mm-hmm. anything like that. When you're trying to analyze, you know, these squares, it, it's just... It just beats on the computer, no matter what oh, yeah. computer you have. Mm-hmm. And the worst is when you haven't saved your work recently. Like, oh, uh, <laughs> save every two minutes. Yeah, on any yeah. program you guys hear, like use, like just anyone listening, just control S, just constantly, especially right. doing something yeah. that requires a lot of RAM. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I lost I, some work. <laughs> if you're an art catalog, don't delete anything because it won't come back. Oh no, ever. no, no, no! Don't delete things. Don't move files. Let them be. For people who aren't, you know, savvy to this, can you guys explain what GIS is? Like, obviously, it's a mapping software, but like, can you guys elaborate? And like, what is a? You did mention earlier, Rena, a mm-hmm. multi-scaler approach and how you would have liked yeah, to use that. Yeah. Just like briefly recap, like why that would have, uh, why you feel like that would have mattered, and kind of just explain the different kinds of approaches. Yeah, sure. Um, do you want to take the GIS con- uh, question, Connor, or yeah, yeah, <laughs> do you sure. want me to take it? No, I'll uh, I'll probably need you to fill in some blanks if that's okay, because I'll, I'll mess it up somehow. So GIS yeah, no. is uh, Geographic Information Systems. It's a basically a system that helps us analyze and understand space. And you can do this on the, the amount of research that you can do on GIS is pretty much infinite. You can ask infinite amount of questions depending on what you're interested in. We are both working in archaeology, so we usually are working with site data, archaeology site data, mm-hmm. which defi- which is a mm-hmm. defined area of where the 
archaeological um, remains are. But in the most popular program for this is um, run by Esri, which I had mentioned in the last episode is the devil. But I love them. <laughs> yeah. Please don't send a cease and desist. But, I, yeah. I love and hate them. <laughs> Love-hate relationship. Yeah, because it, it's just a... It can be a frustrating program because things shut down, but it's also the mm-hmm. most usable one of them out right now. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything yeah. else to add to that, Tarina. Arena. I know. I think you got it. Um, and I think the reason why it's so prevalent in archaeology is because archaeology is inherently spatial. And I think you touched on that. So it's like a really useful tool for us to ask questions of the past. Absolutely. And in regards to the multi-scalar question, so... I guess the reason it's important for us to use a multi-scalar approach is that I think there's certain biases or limitations of your analysis if you're looking from just one scale. And if you can incorporate finer scale data, you can kind of fill in the gaps of just any one approach. So if I was hoping to use survey data, right? And survey data is can be very fine scale. So by kind of linking a kind of a macro analysis with kind of a more of a meso or micro analysis, you kind of help reinforce your results, if that makes sense. I think in archaeology or like or any science in general, I think the more kind of the more tools you use that kind of go with each other, that kind of help uh, help make up for some of the limitations for the other, the stronger your results. And again, with scale, scale is arbitrary. You set the scale. So based on how you set the scale, you, like it kind of pushes your um, results in a certain direction, right? So like when I'm looking at such a large scale as all of Albania, I'm bound to miss stuff. Um, and I think like I acknowledge, you know, like no data set is perfect. Um, so by incorporating different kinds of scalar analysis, you kind of help account for some of the limitations. Yeah, that's solid. Totally agree. Did the same thing for my thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but how does this, so you clearly passed two yeah. years out of three. Very impressive. Yeah, geez. Um, yeah, good Lord. <laughs> don't recommend it. I'm telling you, <laughs> if you don't have something pushing you to finish faster, take your time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how does this play into your dissertation re- research? Well, uh, my dissertation research is essentially an outgrowth, uh, especially methodologically. So I already have an idea of what I'm going to be doing for my dissertation. And I've actually already started working with the data and I did some preliminary research this summer. So what I'll be doing ideally is a settlement pattern analysis, no surprise there, of uh, northern Albania and western Kosovo. Uh, I'm going to be focusing mainly in Kosovo, but I'm going to be looking at the two regions broadly. So this research that I'm going to be doing goes along with the research of my advisor at Michigan and goes along with a project that I am the geo uh, database manager of. So I'm part of a project called uh, Rapid K. We got a really cool acronym name. So it stands for Regional Archaeology of the Payan Istok Districts of Kosovo. And it's a multi-year project. We just wrapped up year two this summer. Um, it is co-directed by my advisor, Michael Galati. We have Kosovar archaeologist Haji Mehmetai, who used to be director of the um, Archaeological Institute of Kosovo, and Silvia Galati. So we have three co-directors. We've been going out there for the past two years, and we'll hopefully be going out for a few more. Um, and I've been involved with the project from the very beginning. I've been I made like the very beginning maps of for the, even the proposal, if I remember correctly. And actually, I just finished last of the 2019 season maps today. So that's good. I feel good about that. I know. They've been like on my mind. I've literally been churning out like 50 maps a day. It's been ridiculous. But yeah, so my research is going to be kind of running along parallel to the research of the project. And essentially, I'm going to be looking at like what's going on in this part of the world in prehistory in regards to where um, people are settling and how people are moving. And these research questions kind of grow out of the research that my advisor has been doing in Northern Albania for the past few years. There was another survey project in Northern Albania, Project Archaeologique Shkodras, PASH for short, and it was a pretty much like a, an intensive five-year survey looking at uh, the prehistory of Northern Albania. And what the results showed from this project was that, you know, there's a lot of movement around this time, and it seems, to use the words of my advisor, that all roads seem to leave to Kosovo. So we want to know in prehistory if there was movement between these two regions, what these people were doing, how they were settling. And I'm going to be looking at a time slice, specifically Bronze Age, Iron Age, looking at um, 
specifically Hillforts actually, to see what their function was and if uh, what role they played in like the settlement and movement of people. Ideally, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> well, so this is interesting to me because I'm a prehistory nerd, but over here, like where we dig, we don't have like the, we get copper age way up north, but that's about it. We don't like turn into the you know steel age until the Europeans get here. But in Europe, can you see like a stark change from like the prehistoric with stone tools and things to like a metal using culture? Or is that something that you're looking at with your research? See, I'm not going that far into the past in terms of like uh, stone tools, but we do see them in survey. We have recovered lithics. Okay. So it's there. This part of the world has been inhabited for thousands and thousands of years, and it has like a long, continuous record. Uh, but from my research, I'm not going far into like the Stone Age or when uh, they were primarily using stone tools. Sure. Uh, I'm not even going into the Neolithic. I'm specifically interested in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, mainly because this is the, the time when we see certain like sociopolitical complexities emerge. We have burial tumuli. We have like big settlements, and I'm kind of interested in trying to understand these things, yeah. uh, specifically the, the way of life. Like we have the research shows that this is a, in the Bronze Age that these people were pastoralists. They were moving cool, around. That was my next question, actually. Yeah, yeah. So these are Bronze Age pastoralists and moving around in the landscape. And actually, it's really interesting because there's a quite a bit of continuity in terms of how people have lived in that part of the world up until history. I don't know if I said this earlier, but Albania is one of the enigmas of Europe, right? It's a really interesting place. I know I sound biased by saying that because I'm from there. Up until the 19th century, it was the only place in Europe that had tribal level societies, right? So yeah, it's super interesting. Um, Up until the 19th century, we had people living in Northern Albania following an oral law code, um, the code of Lektukajin. So like, it's an interesting, interesting place to study. Um, And the tribal societies in Northern Albania, I think, are a very interesting kind of, I know, enigma, right? Um, These people living these pastoral ways of life, even in like, recent history. You said some words about a cult there. Um, Can you explain what that was? Or was it a culture? Uh, a cult. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't recall a cult. Oh, um, you said something about it was something that was practicing up until like the 19th century. Oh, tribal, tribal level society, like a tribal way of life. Yeah. So basically, up until the 19th century, we had like a tribal organization where people were organized in terms of uh, kin or fees family. And that was like something that dominated from the time of um, Skanderbeg, from the time of like the beginning of the oral law code up until the 19th century. And there's parts of that way of life that are still very prevalent in Albanian culture and life today. There are certain parts of the law code that are prevalent today. For example, the Albanian notion of honor, the Albanian notion of um, hospitality, and then the more not the more kind of uh, what's the word for it? The more like Hollywood uh, famous, the blood feuds that some people may or may not have heard about. Sure. So, yeah. But yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, on, on that note, the geographic projection system of this project has changed, which has screwed up our data. And once we get it reprojected, we will be back. All right. Welcome back to Life in Ruins podcast, section three with our guest, Arena. Um, just real quick, figured out what the confusion was during the last uh, segment. Arena did not say cult. Uh, David just misheard uh, her say code of law. Um, yep. So got that figured out. No cults yeah. were mentioned. So we're all good. <laughs> no cults. And English is my second language, FYI. So sorry about that, too. Oh, no, you're good. It's my first language, and it was abysmal for me to... <laughs> be through school at this point so yeah yeah um anyway all good but we had some talk about tribal society so that is Mm -hmm. also interesting always always continuing on then with that conversation so what are you most excited about with this thesis dissertation yeah I'm just really, really excited to be working in Kosovo. It's a place that I think is very understudied. I mean, Albania is understudied, but Kosovo is even more understudied. So I'm really excited to be a part of the survey project, Rapid K, and I'm excited to continue on my own research just because I feel like the contributions that our research is going to have to the field, I think, are just going to be... And I feel like they're going to take the field in a good direction. It's a place that, like I said, hasn't received the attention that it deserves. And it's got such a rich archaeological record that I think it, you know, it deserves its place in the spotlight. And 
when you're when you have places like this that are understudied, I think understanding them better helps us understand the record as a whole. So knowing what's going on in bronze and Iron Age Kosovo, I think is going to help us better understand what's going on in the Balkans, right? Um, giving us kind of a more holistic understanding of what's going on in the past in this part of the world. So I think that's like what I'm super excited about, just doing my my part in helping fill the gaps. That's awesome. That's, um, that's what I, I learned. Yeah. I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, why I do you think um, it's so understudied or what is it the culture? Is it the kind of um, the things what 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 contributes to this lack of studying these areas? I know Carlton had mentioned Ukraine. It's like very understudied. And I think he said something to do with funding. Mm-hmm. They're poor. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, funding can definitely be a part of it. For Albania, for example, it was a communist country for like a f- half a century. So it was closed off to the rest of the world. So while archaeology was going on, nobody knew what was going on. So like for in Albania's case, we've the archaeology of Albania and like the world sphere has only existed for God, let's say like 20, 30 years after the fall, like when communism fell. So like in the late eighties, early nineties. So we haven't been out there for so long. And then in the terms of Kosovo, Kosovo is not even 11 years old, right? It's, it's, it's a baby in terms of countries. So there just hasn't been the infrastructure to study the archaeology of that area. Right. And, you know, now there's finally resources to do so. I mean, Kosovo had other problems before in terms of, you know, trying to gain its independence. And now that that's been established, we can turn our attention to other things like it's prehistory. Nice. Yeah, that's something like Connor, Connor touched on that I was going to briefly talk about. Like the, the vibe that I got from Ukraine and what I was told definitely related to the Communist Party. And mm-hmm. Eastern Europe and Southern Europe being part of that. And my buddies in Croatia, when I visited, I just chilled with archaeologists from Croatia the entire time. And it was mm-hmm. kind of like the, this common denominator of, first, it was the Soviet system reshaping itself mm-hmm. out of the Soviet system. And then the countries yeah. that were able to, I guess, transition better, like Poland and some of the other countries who mm-hmm. has, you know, those countries have a pretty decent archaeological record at this point in time. And it's... It's like as an American archaeologist or like a North American archaeologist, it's a, almost a golden opportunity to get mm-hmm. your foot in the door and be part of new research and being able to apply the existing methodologies and the existing theories on what is essentially like a Bambi-like archaeological record. Yeah, I mean, there's research going on there for sure. Like there's so many talented um, archaeologists from these countries doing what they can with the resources they have. The problem is resources. I've met so many talented archaeologists in Albania and Kosovo. They are some of my dearest colleagues. The problem is funding. The problem is, you know, getting grants. The problem is getting people to be interested in the archaeology of these places, right? So I think for people that want to go over there, like these collaborations are so important to work with local archaeologists. Um, We have, like, for example, one of the co-directors of Rapid K is a local Kosovar archaeologist, right? So actually we have two local Kosovo archaeologists because Sylvia is also from Kosovo. So it's really, and like our team um, in Rapid K is is comprised of like, we have people from Kosovo, we have people from Albania, we have people from America. Like that collaborative atmosphere is really prevalent, right? And I think that's super, super important because, you know, there are people doing things there. It's just resources, I guess, in yeah, some cases. Absolutely. And you can you can help as like an archaeologist come there and bring that money and help employ people in the local community to help, you know, at least mm-hmm. yeah. alleviate some exactly. Get the community some involved. sort of Yeah, absolutely. I think that's and I think no Or like even train students. That. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's super cool. Yeah, because like one of the things we do, yeah, like what we do uh, at the project is we have uh, undergrad students from the University of Pristina and University of Tirana come out and we help train them in methods that maybe they haven't learned before. I talk to them about GIS at any moment that I can and I notice that there's like this big desire to like learn it, but the universities don't have like the infrastructure to teach it to their students, or at least the archaeology students aren't having access to this. And this is something that I think about a lot because I realized the importance of geospatial analysis and I saw how much interest there was in the students to learn it, but the resources aren't there. So this is kind of like a little project that I have at the back of my mind, something that I want to develop in time, hopefully. Oh my God, do they want 
GIS specialist. GIS. And that's the first thing they asked yeah. me, like, do you know GIS? I'm like, no, but I can do Bayesian analysis of radiocarbon dates. And like, we don't, that's useful. Yeah, they're like, we don't have a radiocarbon record in this country. So you're useless. And I was like, well, I'll just start digging that. Yeah. Fair. Digging works. Digging works. That's super interesting because you guys brought up the fact that archaeology hasn't really been done until recently. Like here we get kind of mad, like in our theory class, we're like, oh man, they did it so bad in 1880. But like, they were still doing archaeology. I mean, it was, it was bad, but like, I didn't think about that not being a thing over there, especially with that. And I, I know in um, when I had visited Israel, I had like checked out all these sites that I wanted to learn about and I had researched them and all of them had started or like all the publications came after 1967, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting. And obviously, that's when Israel formed. So it's like, oh, so right as that happened, like all of these universities were like, all right, let's go dig some shit. And mm-hmm. it was like super cool so i didn't think about that fall of communism probably brought on a lot of archaeology across europe that's kind of interesting i wonder what the palestinian archaeologists did or if there was palestinian archaeology and if there was where that content ran off to but that's just an aside yeah that'd be super yeah, neat that's know. an interesting question but yeah uh, what i was gonna say though um in albania that's the record i know the best archaeology was actually super popular during the communist regime but the problem is your results had to go along with the ideals of the party <laughs> so while archaeology was being done, um, it's been actually, and one of the other things that for the archaeological record of Albania is for a very long time, the people that ran the show were um, outsiders. So you had French, Italian, German archaeologists digging in Albania with almost no kind of leadership roles by Albanian archaeologists. And w- we finally had leadership roles under the regime because everybody else was kicked out. Um, but again, your results had to follow certain guidelines. So it's only more recently that we have, you know, I guess, more scientific research. Oh, in Ukraine, their big problem was in order to get a PhD, they had to discover a new culture as an archaeologist. What? They, they oh, had God. to. So there's been big work in Ukraine recently of like coalescing all these new cultures into the one culture they actually represent. But that was the only way you could get your PhD. You had to find something mm-hmm. new. So a lot of these people, you know, when they dug sites, they're like, oh, this is a brand new culture because they they had to. So not only did the communist regime collapse, and like you said, Arena, that they were they've been doing archaeology. It was just under a different system mm-hmm. with different rules. Yeah. But mm-hmm. one of their, you know, guidelines during that system was this uh, you know, push to develop a new culture. So they've not only had to like reformat themselves into um, a new way of doing archaeology, even in Europe, but also like their archaeological record is heavily, I wouldn't say skewed, highly variable where it shouldn't be. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. But, you know, things things are changing now, right? So that's good. Things are going in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. It's perfect work. Do you find data, either spatial data or site data, um, before the fall of communism useful? Even like the kind of, we call it here in America, the gray literature, which is like CRM reports and stuff like that. Do you find that super useful or is that kind of in the same vein that they had to kind of massage that to be within appropriate to the government? I think there's use to data from like... uh, the communist period for sure. Um, I actually, like some of the articles I used were written in that time and a site location is a site location. So for me, it wasn't necessarily problematic. I just needed to know where the site was and what periods were associated with it. And again, I guess at that time, the association of a site to a certain period can be problematic because no radiocarbon dates. But I don't think we should cross out those data sets, I think just be wary of the biases. I mean, every data set is going to have a biases, even um, data sets that you create now, because a data set is just a set of values, right? It's not the artifacts itself. It's what you take out of the artifacts based on the questions and the measurements and the analysis that you do. No matter what, your data set is going to have some sort of bias. But I think it's important to acknowledge that and, you know, work with it, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I, I love that interpretation the way that i always explain it is that archaeology gives a voice to the voiceless but the mm-hmm, answer you mm-hmm. get depends on the questions you give it exactly exactly and your questions are driven by your theory and on and on and on exactly so, but yeah so every data set has a bias it just you know account for it as best as you can oh, that's awesome what is your favorite part about working in albania and eastern europe east southeastern europe sorry 
I genuinely, like, I have such a deep love for Albania and Kosovo, and my reasons for that, I get, you know, I'm from Albania, I love going back to my home country, and I'm so genuinely blessed to be able to work in my home country. I understand, like, I acknowledge that I'm super, super lucky to be able to do what I do, and I really hope that, you know, by you know, by more people going to these places and by trying to bring the prehistory of these places to the forefront, people will understand that Eastern Europe is not a scary place. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I know there's like certain ideas that people might have about Eastern Europe, you know, like thank you taken for giving Albanians a bad rap everywhere. You know, these places are, you know, they're wonderful places to be. The people are friendly. The culture is amazing. The archaeology is brilliant. Like, like, don't be scared of these places. Go see these places. I know people say, oh, you should be careful in Eastern Europe. Don't travel by yourself and don't do this and don't do that. Like, I travel by myself all the time. I know the bus system of Kosovo and Albania and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm a woman traveling by myself with a suitcase and a backpack and nothing has ever happened to me, knock on wood. But like, what I mean, what I'm trying to say is these are safe places, they're places that are full of rich, beautiful culture and caring, wonderful people. So I think if I could, that's something that I love about these places. And I wish more people knew this aspect of these places. Oh, totally agree. I'm super excited to get back to Ukraine this summer. And like Mm -hmm. that whole experience, I've never been to Europe and I went to Ukraine Mm -hmm. first time. And uh, that's just one of the things, I mean, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but did people tell you to be careful? People, Don't go people certain told me to be careful. Um, I do, I do yeah. recall, though, the first time I showed up to site in um, Zaporizhia that uh, I went out to go get supplies by myself without telling. Well, not by myself. I was with Kudra and uh, I didn't tell the, the site director. And like he was frantically calling people trying to figure out where I was because he was because yeah. he was worried. But I never had a problem. I guess my only my only barrier was the language. So if, People mm-hmm. who want to go to Eastern Europe, I'd highly recommend, or just anywhere in general, know the local language to get by. It took me two weeks mm-hmm. to be able to order beer by myself <laughs> without having a translator. So Hey, you learned eventually. I did. I did. Google Translate, shout out. Mm-hmm. Always there to help us out. But yeah, I mean, we had um, undergrad students from University of Michigan come out, right? And they loved Kosovo. They didn't want to leave. Um, one of the students became so fluent. It was like amazing it was, um, how much they like embraced and loved the culture there and being there and the archaeology there. So yeah, it's a great, it's a really wonderful place to work. Well, we have a special listener who is extraordinarily engaged, not only with this podcast, but also with our social media. The dude's name is Caleb Welch, and we highly appreciate him. And Arena, would you have any book recommendations for our listener? Because he's been dying to get some new material on his plate. Now, in terms of for fun or like... I guess for someone the- who's like wants to get into anthropology, archaeology. Oof. At the top of my head. <laughs> it's the a top hard of question. my head. Yeah, it is. It is a hard question. I mean, I could suggest like a pop science book. The fifth, I mean, the fifth beginning is good. Ooh, or is it the sixth? Fifth beginning. We're fifth beginning. Yeah, we're biased. We're, we're Bob Kelly students. So we will we'll, yeah. we'll throw that out there. He doesn't, I doubt he has a podcast, dude. He doesn't even have a, a TV in his house. I don't think he has a. I don't think he listens to podcasts, but yes. Uh, the f- He's not listening to ours. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not ours. He's done with us. He's definitely done with me. Well, that's a great book, I think. It's like super short, super like comprehensive. It gives you a nice quick rundown, um, you know, of archaeology, human history, and it's just enjoyable to read. But if you want a book on Albania, <laughs> John Wilkes is the Illyrians. Now that's a good one. Uh it's a, a little old, but a goodie. So Perfect. So there you go, Caleb. You got uh, The Fifth Beginning by Robert Kelly and The Illyrians by... <laughs> John Wilkes. John Wilkes. So uh, go to... Go to your, John Wilkes. Yeah, not John Wilkes, but so Caleb, go to your local bookstore, support local business, and uh, see if you can get those ordered. Mm-hmm. Don't use Amazon. Yeah. I have a no, quick no. question after that. Sure. Um, when he asked me that question, I was like, man, I don't really know. And then you, you also said, man, that's tough. Why, why do you think that is? Why is there not an easy book to recommend on anthropology? Oh, that's a good question. I think, honestly, because I think for a long time, uh, archaeology and academics in general were just not geared to the general public. And I think that's something that we need to change and thankfully is changing. As creators of knowledge, I think we owe it to the public to make this knowledge accessible. 
And I think one of the ways we can do this is by writing books that are accessible to everybody so everybody can read them, understand them, and know what in the world we're doing. I mean, we can write articles all the time that are going to go in journals that nobody can afford or understand. I think we kind of owe it to the public to share the knowledge that we're creating. So I think that's why it's a problem because for a long time, like the most famous archaeology book of like, or the most famous book about human prehistory wasn't even written by an archaeologist. I'm referring to like Jared Diamond. Yeah. So like, yeah. Um, I mean, I think we owe it to the public to kind of make our knowledge accessible. And that's why it's so difficult to point out an archaeology book that's, you know, a good, easy, fun read because there's not that many, at least not to my knowledge. Do you think social media helps with that? And do, do you want to plug your social media? Yeah, I think uh, social media is a wonderful tool, just like GIS. Um, I think it's an easy way for us to kind of reach and engage with you know, the public and let them know what we're doing, let them know academics are humans too. Um, you know, we read and write all the time, but you know, we also love our dogs and cats and our families and the stuff right. like that. So give them a human aspect of what it means to be an academic. Oh, absolutely. And because this is a Life in Ruins podcast, we have to ask this. If you could do it over again, would you choose to live a life in ruins? Oh, 100%. I don't even think it was ever an option or a question for me. I think this was always kind of the path for me, a life in ruins in Albania. Specifically. Well, solid. Well, thank you for that. Well, everyone, we just chatted with Arena Bachi. She's an anthropologist and archaeologist studying at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And you can follow her social media. Her Instagram account is at arena.bachi. So at E-R-I-N-A dot B-A-C-I. Thank you guys very much for listening. And we'll be back uh, next month. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Hey, guys, why, why did people get stuck in the Bronze Age for so long? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> why, <don't> Connor? <laughs> they couldn't seem to iron out the details. <laughs> Oh, God. Please cancel our show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, that was painful. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.